Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift is a burnt offering is oh sorry, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. He shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let me ask you this morning to begin, what's your favourite smell? Maybe it's uh, the scent of a freshly picked mango. Or perhaps it's a dozen roses. Or perhaps it's the, the combination of aromatic spices simmering away on the stove. Curry. Kids, what's your favourite smell? Anyone? Anyone brave enough to answer? Yeah? Blackberries. Blackberries. I like it. That's good. Anyone else? Raspberries, oh, there's a bit of a berry family over there. Yeah? Hot chips, oh, I'm with you on that. That is, yes, love the smell of hot chips. 
Uh, I want you to picture that smell and think of how you feel when you smell it. It's a good feeling, isn't it? It's a, it's a pleasurable feeling. And it's one that makes you favorably disposed towards the one who is producing it. That's why uh, wives love it when their husbands give them flowers. I know that I personally prefer walking into the main living area of our house when Robin is cooking dinner over when she's doing toilet training with Austin. (laughs) A pleasing aroma. It makes you, well, pleased. And that is more or less what chapter 1 of Leviticus is all about. You might remember a couple of weeks ago when we first cracked open the book of Leviticus, we saw how the big question was, how can, how can God's people enter God's presence? How is it that an unholy people may enter the presence of a holy God? And there are several parts of that question that we'll be exploring as we work our way through the book. And this morning, we are going to see the first step in that. How can God's people offer up sacrifices that are a pleasing aroma to the Lord? That is our question for this morning as we look at chapter 1. And I don't have any specific headings or points for us this morning, but I hope to draw out the ways that this chapter answers that question. How can God's people offer up sacrifices that are a pleasing aroma to God? So please have your Bibles open to Leviticus 1 as we work our way through it. Page 47, I believe it was, on the Blue Bibles, if you are using one of those. Now, to just orient us again, give us another reminder. We saw a couple of weeks ago how the book of Exodus, which comes before Leviticus, finishes with the presence of God in the tent of meeting, but Moses unable to enter into it, unable to enter into God's presence. And this is the context of the book of Leviticus. The tent of meeting is like a portable Mount Sinai. Remember, we saw then that God's presence, His, his cloud, his, his holiness was so incredible that the people said, no, don't, don't let us come near God. We, we, we know that we will die, surely. And they, and they were also not allowed to come near the base of the mountain. Well, the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was like a portable Mount Sinai where God's presence would go with His people. And so as we come to the beginning of the book, we ask ourselves the question, what will it look like for God's people to go with his people? Sorry, God's presence to go with his people. How? And so we come to verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... From the very first verse, we see God initiating how this will be possible. He calls Moses and speaks to him from the tent of meeting. And right from the outset here, we learn something. God can only be approached on his terms. 
when you think about the fact that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and he is present everywhere, then, well, this makes sense, right? And yet, sadly, how often do we sit in judgment over God and think that we should be telling him how we should approach him? This is certainly true of some unbelievers who think that they can dictate terms with God. You know, they say, I would only worship a God who accepts me as I am and who doesn't expect me to change. If God is not like that, well, he's not worth worshiping, they say. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking similar thoughts. Perhaps you're assessing God based on whether he meets your expectations or whether he lines up with your standards. And all of us, whether Christians or not, must recognize and remind ourselves that we can only dream of coming before the Lord because he has called and spoken. If it were not for his initiative, it would not be possible. Unless he calls and speaks, we would never be able to approach him. Moses, as great and faithful a man of God as he was, had neither the arrogance nor the right to approach God however he wanted to. And this whole book is based upon that fact. The phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses, or the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, occurs 34 times in the book. And once it says, the Lord spoke to Aaron. You see, the book of Leviticus is God's instruction to Moses about how the people of Israel and their priests are to worship the Lord, how they are to live for Him. So what is the first thing that the Lord says to Moses? Verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. I wonder if God knew that the English translation of that would rhyme. The Lord lays out this first general instruction for the rest of the offerings, which play a key role in the book. Bringing sacrifices and bringing offerings were central to the worship of the Lord in the life of Israel. Whenever they bring an offering, whatever it's for, it should come from their livestock or their flock. Bulls or cows, sheep or goats. That's what he's saying. And it is true that we will come across other types of offerings in the book, such as grain offerings and birds, as we just heard from Leviticus 1. They are also used. But these two were the ones that most Israelite worshippers would have brought. And so that's why this initial instruction gives that guideline right from the beginning. Now, before we dive into verse 3 and beyond, it would be helpful for us to get a bigger picture of what is happening in these chapters. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think for many of us, Leviticus can be challenging to read. It is so far removed and so full of lots of just rules about how to do certain offerings. 
So uh, as you'll see on the screen there, everything from verse 3 through to chapter 6, verse 7 are instructions on how to bring five different types of offerings. They are burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. It's likely that the editors of your Bible have added those very headings and you'll see that they are divided up into chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then chapter 4 through to verse 13 of chapter 5, followed by verse 14 of chapter 5 through to verse 7 in chapter 6. Now, it's, it's helpful to keep this in mind because when you read uh, the book of Leviticus for yourself, it gives you some structure for some big chunks of text that you can easily get lost in. When you recognize that, okay, this is what is happening, then it becomes easier to, to have a read of it. And also, next week, I'll be covering the other four offerings in one Sunday. So understanding the shape will make it easier to digest as we go through that. But this morning we're going through uh, this first chapter and the burnt offering more slowly because I hope that in doing so uh, we'll know what to look for as we approach the next few chapters of the book next week. And in fact, this morning we're going to spend most of our time in the first nine verses of Leviticus 1. So my goal today is uh, to be like a Kakadu yellow water cruise guide. You've been on one of those? Uh, or if not, just, just any kind of generic tour guide. My, the, 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 my goal is to be pointing things out to you so that when you see them in the wild yourself, as you read Scripture, you'll be able to recognize them yourself. And my hope and my prayer is that you'll be encouraged and inspired and prepared to study chapters 2 to 6 yourself this week. But we're also going through this chapter in more detail and more slowly because the burnt offering has something of a special place amongst the offerings. Firstly, it was the most common of all the offerings. Numbers chapter 28 tells us that the Lord required two burnt offerings every day from the people of Israel. Two burnt offerings every day. So at a bare minimum, the nation of Israel was sacrificing 730 of its lambs every year. And there were definitely more than that for other occasions because there were other reasons to offer a burnt offering, such as on Sabbath days and in certain situations, as we'll get into in the rest of the book. And one of the most striking features of the burnt offering was that Aside from the skin, the whole animal was burnt up. It's one of the reasons it's called that, the whole animal. And some of the offerings that we'll see next week had portions that the priests or even the the one bringing the offering could eat, but not the burnt offering. It all went up in smoke. Just pause on that for a moment. Here's what Old Testament theologian Gordon Wenham has to say about this. In the overfed West, that includes us, we can easily fail to realize what was involved in offering an unblemished animal in sacrifice. Meat was a rare luxury in OT times, Old Testament times, for all but the very rich. Yet even we might blanch if we saw a whole lamb or bull go up in smoke 
as a burnt offering. How much greater pangs must a poor Israelite have felt? Can you imagine how tempting it would be if you didn't have enough, uh, didn't have many sheep or goats, and we're doing it tough to just skip the sacrifice? It'd be so easy to think, uh, no, actually, you know, God's awfully busy and, and he doesn't need me or my sacrifice, but I need it. Uh, this, this cow is going to feed my whole f- clan and family. I'm sure God would understand. Have you ever been tempted to think that way? I'm sure God would understand. I remember hearing a conversation when I was uh, in university a long time ago where two professing Christians were discussing how to budget their money well. The older one, who had more money experience, uh, said, uh, I tell you what really kills you? Tithes. He said, 10%, that's a lot. I don't always pay tithes, he said. Now, uh, I'm not about to get into an argument about whether 10% is still valid for us today or not. But all Christians certainly agree that giving our finances to the Lord and to the local church is an essential act of our worship to Him. And yet, how much easier is it to think, God will understand why I can't give to the church this week. And now this isn't about bleeding dry those who already have nothing or who are struggling already financially. They're the ones, after all, who should be helped by the rest of the church. But if most of us in the overfed West were to be honest with ourselves, we would surely admit that we more quickly give up our giving to the Lord. That we more quickly, that that generosity is usually the first thing to go when times are tough. Living for the Lord is costly. Enormously so. It always has been and it always will be. And it always has been and always will be worth it. The burnt offering was a very clear and stark reminder of that cost. Well, what did that costly sacrifice look like for the ancient Israelite? Let's read from verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Right here from the beginning, we see the purpose of the burnt offering. That the one offering might be what? Accepted before the Lord. This is the purpose. This is the goal of the burnt offering. And of course, the implication is that without this, then the person is not accepted before the Lord. And so how was one accepted? How does this burnt offering enable one to be accepted before him? Well, as verse 4 says, through the animal making atonement for the worshipper. 
Now, we'll come back to all of that in a moment, but I wanted to state that up front so that we're clear about why this is happening, why God gives this instruction. That is the purpose for it. But there are some unanswered questions at this point, such as why atonement is even necessary or why this is the way God made it possible. For now, what we must recognize is that this instruction enables the worshiper to be accepted. Now, we don't do these offerings anymore, and we certainly don't have a tent of meeting or a temple. So uh, allow me to help us enter into the world of the ancient Israelites for a few minutes. Let me give you a sense of the layout of where this is happening. Now, remember, uh, the people of Israel are wandering around in the wilderness as a big camp of hundreds of thousands of people. And whenever they set up camp, in the center of the camp was the tent of meeting known as the tabernacle. Now, this picture gives us an idea of how the tabernacle was to be set up. And it's uh, from the ESV study Bible. I've uh, modified it slightly, as you can see. Now, we know this is more or less what it would have looked like because we have instructions on how the tabernacle was to be built in Exodus and in other parts of the Pentateuch. And the, the outer curtain there, as you can see, enclosed the whole court. And then in that, uh, on the western side of it, was the tent of meeting. As you can see, uh, the altar of burnt offerings, along with the basin, they were outside the tent of meeting in the court. And so uh, right here on this altar of burnt offering is where the vast majority of offerings that we read about in Leviticus, including the burnt offering, would occur. Uh, The word in Hebrew that we translate burnt actually means to ascend, Uh, Burnt captures the the fact that when it is burned up, uh, the smoke from it ascends to the heavens. And remember, as I said, the whole animal is being burnt up. So just, just picture this. If you were bringing a burnt offering from the herd, then you would be taking from wherever you are in the camp, somewhere uh, stationed at some point, You'd be taking a bull from your own herd, you'd be leading it to the center of the camp and through that to the entrance to the tent of meeting. Once again, it is costly. This bull who would feed who knows how many, you're about to come and burn the whole thing. I was at a men's camp once where they decided to kill one of the cows to feed all of the men who were there. There were several dozen of us who ate this cow. It was certainly not unblemished, nor was it one of the best of the herd. Uh, I'm pretty sure there was a lot left over. So just think about that. Imagine taking one of your best bulls, one without blemish, to bring it here to slaughter it and see the whole thing go up in smoke. Yarrett said this morning, yeah, meat's expensive. Uh, Maybe at the moment, maybe right now we can relate a little bit to that. But that cost for us is, is still nowhere near what it cost the Israelite. I don't know about you, but my instincts are probably, they're more like the disciples who, who criticize the woman who anointed Jesus with very expensive ointment. And they say, hey, why this waste? 
for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. I can think of so many other things I could do with this bull that would be better than just burning the whole thing up. I imagine for us it might feel a bit like withdrawing a month or more's worth of wages and then just throwing it all on the campfire. If it weren't for the fact that this is how God instructed his people to worship him. We worship God as he has instructed us and we trust his wisdom and his reasons for doing so. So what did the Lord tell them to do with the bull? Well, before killing it, the offerer is to lay his hand on the head of the bull. And the word for lay his hand there probably refers more to uh, leaning, oh sorry, uh, to leaning on it. And even though the text doesn't explain why this is done, there is some pretty clear imagery in the rest of the book that gives us an idea. So Leviticus 16.21 talks about how Aaron and the priests were to confess the sins of the people of Israel over the, the goat on the Day of Atonement. Now, we don't get that instruction in Leviticus 1. And so, but even if he didn't confess his sin and symbolically transfer it to the animal, it seems clear that what we see in verse 4 is, is that there is an identification with the bull that is being offered here. And that is made even clearer by the fact that the bull is accepted for him to make atonement for him. Kids, does anyone, this is a tricky question, does anyone here know what the word atonement means? Really tricky. I'm, I'm actually not anticipating that any of you will know. But what I am hoping is that my explanation will help you remember the meaning. Because you see, the word atonement actually has English roots. It comes from at one meant. Atonement means to be made one. To be brought together. Or to use it in another word, to be reconciled. So atonement means to be made at one with the thing that you are not reconciled with. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for atonement has had lots of debate about it because its meaning can be a bit unclear depending on the context. Sometimes it clearly means uh, some kind of ransom for sin and other times it seems to refer to purification. And we're going to come across the term more in the book and talk about it more. But for now, it's worth noting that it seems clear that reconciliation with God and ransom for sin is what is going on in verse 4. As the worshipper lays their hand, leans their hand on the bull, there is an identification with them. And that bull is offered up so that the one offering may be reconciled with God. So that their ransom may be paid. That is, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, our greatest need for our sin to be atoned for. The burnt offering means the worshipper may be accepted before the Lord 
because of the bull paying the ransom for their sin. Does that sound familiar? And friends, if you're here this morning and you're wondering how you might possibly be accepted before the Lord, this is the essence of how that is possible. I encourage you to keep listening to hear how this is fulfilled in Jesus. But for now, we must read on to find out what happens to the bull. Here he is being led to the entrance to the altar, and this is what happens to them from verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Oh, sorry, hang on. Oops. I went too far. Um, the bull is slain, it is flayed, it is cut up into pieces, it is placed on the altar and burned up. The one thing that you'll notice uh, as we work our way through the book of Leviticus is that blood is really important. Now, we don't get an explanation here for why the blood of the bull is thrown against the sides of the altar. And throughout the book, for different offerings, there are different things that happen. Sometimes blood is poured, sometimes it's thrown, sometimes it's sprinkled. What seems to be clear is that blood symbolizes cleansing. And the, the little preview that I gave you because I went too far gives us a bit of an explanation of that from Leviticus 17:11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. After the skin is removed from the bull, which is the only thing that it uh, isn't burned. Now, the the entrails and the legs are then washed. Kids, you know what entrails are? They're basically like guts, right? The, the, the guts of it, the, the innards of it are washed. Now it's, it's, it's a funny thing to think, well, why would you wash it if you're just about to burn it all up, right? The, the legs there, probably referring to hind legs, um, is, is the most likely reason for this is because if you think about entrails and guts, what comes out of guts, and if you think about hind legs and what might get on the hind legs, you know, it's, that's, that's pretty gross. And that's probably the point, that the entrails and the hind legs are, are being washed to symbolize the fact that no uh, excrement should be on them, even though they are about to be burnt. You see, remember, this bull was meant to be without blemish. It was meant to be perfectly clean, set apart, 
Nothing less was fit for an offering to a holy God. And now, this wasn't because God was a clean freak. It's not like he was afraid of touching blood or excrement or, or something like that. Now, he's God. He doesn't need rubber gloves. But all of this reminded the Israelites of the gravity of their sin. Of just how utterly holy God is. And how utterly unholy they were. Brothers and sisters, do you appreciate that? Once again, and this will be the case throughout this book, that is what Leviticus, Leviticus reminds us of. Our sin separates us from God. We are in desperate need to be brought into his presence somehow for our sin to be atoned for. This is what was required to have sin atoned for in order for the worshipper to be accepted before the Lord. And ultimately, it is how their sacrifice might be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The whole thing burned up. A food offering isn't a specific type of offering. It's not one of the five. And the term food offering describes that this burnt offering is given for the Lord, for his pleasure. That's its purpose. But it's important to recognize that even though this imagery is being used, it is different to what the surrounding pagans believed. You see, they believed that their gods had appetites just like human beings. And so their offerings were there to feed them. And we perhaps get a glimpse of how some were tempted to start thinking that the Lord was the same. But God rebukes that. He says in Psalm 50, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You see that? God is not needing this offering so that he can eat. He doesn't, he doesn't need them to sustain him. He's not about to go hungry. No, you see, the, the purpose of the burnt offering, it was all for the one bringing the offering, the worshipper. They were the ones in need. And the point of their offering is that it would rise up to the Lord and be a pleasing aroma to him, an ascension offering. This is what burnt offerings were meant to be. It's important to recognize, as we just saw in Psalm 50 and in other places, in other parts of Scripture, God rebukes the people because they sometimes think that, well, as long as I do my offering, as long as I do my, my bit, God's going to be happy. But no, as we read time and time again in Scripture, these offerings, they must be brought in faith. 
They must be brought with a heart that, that desires to, uh, to please the Lord, that desires to be made one with Him, to be reconciled with Him. And so it is still true today, friends. Do not think that simply doing, going through the motions, acting in the, and, and seeking to, to be obedient in whatever it might be that God uh, calls us to do is enough if your heart is cold towards Him. Bring your offerings in faith. Well, in verses 10 to 13, the Lord gives uh, instructions on how offerings were done when they came from the flock. So one could bring a sheep or a goat and go through the same process. And in verses 14 to 17, we see how they were done with birds. The reasons for these options is that God is providing for both the well-off in Israelite society, those who can boast about however many bulls and cows they might have, but he's also providing for the poor. A bull was much more valuable than a sheep or a goat, and a sheep or a goat was much more valuable than birds. Birds you could probably catch around the camp without too much trouble. And one of the things that I love about this is how it puts everyone on an equal footing before God. You see, if someone had the means to bring a bull, then that's what they needed to bring. But if they didn't, then they were to bring a sheep or a goat. And if they couldn't afford that, then a couple of birds. But have a look at verse 9, verse 13, and verse 17. Regardless of what offering was brought, what was the result? a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You see, whether it was a bull, whether it was a goat that you could afford, whether it was two birds, the offering was still a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A bull was not more pleasing. A bird was not less pleasing. That is still true today. Brothers and sisters, your offerings to the Lord are not judged based on how expensive or incredible or amazing they are. They're not based on how good you are at whatever you do in service to the Lord. Your acceptance before Him is not a sliding scale dependent on your performance. Do you sometimes look around at other Christians who seem to have more than you, who seem to be able to do more than you in the service of God? And do you wonder, oh, I'm, just, I'm just not good enough. Not a good enough Christian. Not as amazing. I wish I had that person's talents, wish I had that person's resources in order to be able to be more pleasing before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God is just as pleased with what you bring to Him as He is with what they bring. 
You remember in Jesus' parable of the three servants with various amounts of talents. One was given five, one was given two, one was given one. The problem with the last guy wasn't that he only had one talent to start with. No, his problem was that he failed to be faithful with what God gave him. Every one of God's children who in faith brings their sacrifice of worship, trusting in Jesus, is accepted. You need not feel like you do not have enough. Whether your offering is, so to speak, a bull or a goat or a couple of birds, the result is the same. It is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If you're a competitive person, you're probably not going to like that instinctively because you'll want some reason to be able to boast before the Lord, some reason to be able to bargain, be able to say, no, but look at all this great work that I've done. But I hope that as you grow to know and love the gospel and the mercy of our Lord, it will cause you to rejoice in his grace and to find peace in not finding your worth in your performance. you'll notice if you compare these three sections that there are some differences between them. Most of the detail is in the first offering, in the, in the bull offering, which is why we spent most of our time there. And because these three sections simply address how Israelites with different levels of prosperity approach God, it's clear that the truths of the bull offering apply to the other two. So even though being accepted and atonement are not mentioned in the other two offerings, it is still true of them. It didn't matter which animal was brought. If it was costly for the worshiper bringing it, God accepted it and it pleased him. And this is important because as the author of Hebrews would eventually point out, the blood of bulls and goats were never able to remove sin anyway. This whole sacrificial system that we're going to spend the next few weeks and months looking at that's laid out in 27 chapters of Leviticus was but a type and a shadow of the real thing that was to come. What was that real thing? If blood was and is necessary for atonement, if it is indeed necessary for the forgiveness of sins, then whose blood can accomplish that? Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The blood of an unblemished man, the very Son of God, shed in our place, for the atoning of our sin. Jesus himself, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many, it is by his blood that we might come before the Lord, be washed clean, and have our sin atoned for. He would say in Matthew 26, 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wrong reference on the screen. Friends, it is not our good works or how well we obey or how much money we give that saves us. It is not the quality of our offerings that grants us entry into the new covenant. It is Christ's blood. It is his perfect sacrifice. Earlier, we read the story of God calling Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, in Genesis 22. We cannot imagine how God could ask something of someone. So often we read that and we think, how? What a cost. His only son, the son of the promise. But when you see that what God was asking Abraham to do would foreshadow what he himself would do in order to save us from our sin. And you realize that God's love for us is far bigger and far more amazing than we could possibly imagine. God himself will provide. Listen to Genesis 22 verse 2 again with that gospel truth ringing in your ears. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That is what our Father did for us. Our sin is costly. Its price is death and separation from God. And it costs nothing less than the sacrifice of God's own Son on a hill outside Jerusalem to atone for it. And it is through turning from our sin and putting our faith in Jesus that we may be accepted before the Lord. Jesus gave himself wholly to the Father's will and he gave wholly of himself for us. As Paul would say in Ephesians 5 verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so, brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, because of what he has done for us, because of him being our substitute, being offered up to atone for our sin, What can we do now but give ourselves wholly and completely to the Lord? Do you recognize the great cost of your sin, the great cost that Christ paid? 
in order that you might be accepted before him. Does that move you? Does that drive you? Does that cause you to surrender and offer your life wholly, completely to him? Brothers and sisters, because of Christ, you may now be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Because of Christ, your life is not defined by your sin and your transgressions, but by God's love and mercy given to you. So as you spend the rest of your days, however many that God might give you, you can confidently bring your offering of worship to him. You see, this was how the the Israelites worshipped the Lord. But what is it, how is it that we worship him now that Christ has done away with the sacrificial system? Well, the Lord makes that clear through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you see the, the imagery that Paul is grasping there? Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can offer ourselves totally to him. And we can come in full assurance that whether our living sacrifice looks impressive on the outside or not, it is received by the Lord because of the unblemished sacrifice of his son. Draw near to the Lord, knowing that because of Jesus, you are a pleasing aroma. And because of Jesus, he calls you to offer your whole life as an offering of worship. He gave himself wholly for us. How could we not do the same? Let's pray. Father, we confess that too easily we do not appreciate the gravity of our sin. I know that I am guilty of that. And yet, Father, we thank you that your word continues to expose these things to us, to hold up a mirror. And we thank you that it doesn't only do that, but it also lights up the path of salvation. It illuminates to us the great joy of having our sin atoned for by your grace through the sacrifice of your son. Lord, may we ever praise you, delight in you, long for you because of that great love that you've shown us. And we ask, Lord, that as a result, we might be able to joyfully surrender, turn away from the the sins and temptations of this world 
the counterfeit gods that promise so much and deliver so little, that we might be a whole burnt offering, a sacrifice of worship in our lives, a pleasing aroma to you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.